Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, for anybody listening here, welcome to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We are here uh, on a live show today. I think it's a very, very good show, a very powerful show uh, that we have for you. I don't, it does, it's not meant to be scary. The title is Satanic Ritual Abuse, but we need to break those words down because a lot of times we hear, oh my goodness, Satanic Ritual Abuse, and we think automatically this is it, it's over, the devil took over, and that's all that there is to it. But believe it or not, we're going to break that down, demystify it, bring in the uh, mental health perspective on it. What does that mean? What does it look like? And really, what does it mean when we say that? Because those are some powerful words. We need to take a step back sometimes and really ask ourselves, what are we really saying by that? And do we know it's true? Are there assumptions that are being made? And sometimes I've seen this a lot in deliverance ministries where people say, oh, that sounds like satanic ritual abuse. And there's no proof of anything. So we're going to get into that. But here at the top of the noon hour, let's start with the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. <clears throat> and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, <clears throat> pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray unto thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, folks, you know, big show today, big words. Um, and the reason that this show came up is because this article was brought to my attention. Uh, it was a review done on a website. I put the link there on our show. Um, but it was this big article that came about and it was talking about, gosh, you know, the devil in Rome, Satan in Rome, what's going on with the priesthood. Very, very sad story. Let's talk about that briefly. And it, it's a story about a, a priest who is no longer with the Roman Catholic Church. He was laicized. So his priestly uh, faculties were removed by Rome and he was he's no longer allowed to practice as a Catholic priest. But there was a question about what he was doing. He was studying in Rome. He was studying at the NAC. And he was studying in Rome, and apparently he befriended this young gal who was also doing studies in theology. And this young gal says that she felt inspired to study more about God, to go study about theology, and she went to Rome. Well, what occurred when they were there? The first thing that occurred is that there, a friendship developed, a friendship developed between this young gal and a priest. And she said, oh, this is great. I can be with this priest, and I feel safe with him because he's a man, and he can protect me, but he's a man of God, a man of the cloth, and uh, so I don't have to worry about there being any kind of uh, malfeasance or, or him wanting to do anything bad to me. 
Um, and as their friendship developed, uh, one of the things that happened is he was starting to groom her. Little did she know he was starting to groom her and saying, gosh, you know, we have something special. We're spiritually connected. We're going to, we have to get closer spiritually. In fact, we have to get married spiritually. And in fact, we have a spiritual relationship together. I think that the Holy Spirit, you know, has put this on my heart. I'm praying about this. Um, and he, you know, they continue this friendship. Even as he became a priest, he became ordained and he was brought back here to the United States. But he was using this connection, his power as a priest, and he knows that this person is, I would dare say, impressionable at that point, seeking something holy and attributing all holiness and all goodness to uh, the church and priests and whatnot, which is good to do, right? The, the sacraments in, them, in and of themselves are pure, but sadly, this priest started to abuse everything. He, he really had it in his mind to take this woman under his wings, but really more than anything else to make her, uh, to, to really abuse her sexually is what he wanted to do. Um, and he started to sadly use the sacrament of the church to do that. He would have masses where uh, she was, he, she would be disrobed and he would blaspheme the Eucharist and he would give her the Eucharist and tell her that that was the only way she was supposed to uh, receive the Eucharist now in different ways, whatever he was doing with it. Really, really a, 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 of a sick mind at this point because now we're using the influence we have, the power that we have, but specifically this is the Eucharist that he's using because he's a priest. And we all know that that has a lot of power for us as Catholic. There's nothing more important than the Eucharist for us uh, to convince her and to kind of put her in an almost brainwash type mentality, uh, making her believe that this is what she needed to do. And in a way she fell for it. I mean, the reality is she fell for it and they, they engaged in this relationship for a while until she was able to break away from it and talk to a different priest who told her this is no good. Um, and she was referred to an exorcist. She said that she felt some darkness and demons attached to her. Um, and probably because she was there present while the Eucharist was being profaned. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she started feeling better. She said that during these prayer sessions, finally Our Lady appeared um, and she felt freed from all this oppression that she was feeling. You know, this priest went on and I guess he, and he was moved to a different diocese and he was grooming other, uh, another young lady and whatnot. And then eventually he got caught. There were enough complaints and he was no longer a priest. Well, one of the things that we need to do is break this case down because one of the things that we need to consider is what the heck was this priest doing? Was this really satanic ritual abuse? Because this is what this exorcist, whoever the exorcist was for this young gal, was telling her, well, this sounds like satanic ritual abuse. And she was very impressionable. And she was saying, well, my exorcist said that had he we kept going this way, she was going to make me part of his coven. You know, coven is a group of witches or warlocks, right? So we say in our Catholic world, we have holy orders and we have monasteries, right? And we have uh, convents. Well, for the, in the, in the, opposite end of things on the dark side of things they have covens right so they have groups of people who start to worship the devil himself and so he told her that this priest was going to take her to her coven and that he was probably going to use her to start recruiting other priests and whatnot now the one thing that i caution anybody who listens to this about is how did this exorcist know how did we know that this priest had a covenant or was part of a satanic ritual? How do we know that he wasn't just in his own world being influenced, shall we say, individually making sinful acts 
and grooming this young lady because he wanted to get a uh, physical uh, intimacy with her and using the Eucharist, unfortunately, as a means of that, using his priesthood as a means of that, using the spirit, Catholic spirituality as a means of that, because he went on to go to different parishes and they, there was never any thoughts or questions or ideas that he was indeed part of a coven. We have to use caution with this. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that the exorcist didn't know. We have to ask him a little bit more in detail, but it didn't jive with the story. This priest didn't appear to be part of a satanic group. It appeared that this is how he was using his priesthood. And was it satanic in nature is the question. You know, she was very sure that, she was, that he was going to lure her into this whole other life of black masses and whatnot. Well, Let's look at this from, from the start. Well, let's look at this case in particular because the reality is we can argue that for anything where a priest fails, where a priest falls. What better than to have a priest fall in the eyes of hell? That's a huge prize because what does a priest represent? The priest carries the priesthood. The priest is not himself Jesus Christ, but he's supposed to stand in place of Jesus Christ. So if the demons can tempt a, a priest to act in a way contrary to Jesus Christ, that's a huge prize because this priest has said specifically, I want to be like Christ for people. I want to let Christ work through me for people and bring the sacraments and continue Christ's mission. The problem here is that if a priest is going to fall in that way and so directly blaspheme the Eucharist, use it to be deplorable and to be, uh, you know, uh, debauchery sexually, well, how many doors is that going to open in the world of deliverance, right? So, of course, I don't, I'm not surprised that she was influenced by these demonic influences or, or creatures or whatnot. But we have to ask ourselves, is this really, is this priest really part of a satanic cult? Or is just the fact that any priest can fall like that through this ritual grooming part of, a, of just being part of, a, of sin and really opening doors to the dark side? You don't have to be part of a cult for that because we can equate this very easily to the abuse of young men. We know that there was a long history of many priests who unfortunately fell to abusing young altar boys, young men in their parishes. And what did they do to them? They groomed them. They brought them in. They befriended them. They found out what they liked or didn't like. They used their power as a priest to have power over these people. We have to recognize that priests have power over their congregation. They have supernatural power that our Lord has given them. They put them in a position of power, in a position where they are there to be Christ-like and help people. So this is where that's a big influence. Are we brainwashed or hypnotized? No, but we are very trusting to the priest because we assume that they're going to be prayerful and that they are going to lead us to Jesus Christ. If we look at this case of this young lady, however, you know, if this were my daughter or listening to this case, what would I tell my daughter? I would want to tell her the truth. I would say, don't be naive. What are you doing befriending a priest one-on-one? -on -one? That's not healthy. You know, there's, it's not healthy to say, oh, I'm a young lady and my only friend is this priest and we go everywhere together. We go to eat together and I know that I'm safe with him. That's not healthy. A priest is a man before he is a priest. And you got to remember that he's going to have even more temptations than most other guys in these cases. It's not good for, it's, it's not fair to him and it's not fair to you because what are you hoping this relationship is going to lead to? We're going to have to talk more about this when we come back from the break. All right, well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Louis Sandoval's show. As always, happy to be here with our Catholic listeners and any listener, really, but anybody who's interested in our Catholic faith 
here on our show. We talk about our mental health, our physical health, and our spiritual health. Today, we're talking about a very important topic, and it's this question about satanic ritual abuse and what this can do to people, what this uh, uh, means, um, and really, why do we use the word satanic ritual abuse? I think what I want our listeners to focus on, because we're so good about in the Catholic world and our deliverance ministries focusing on the word satanic, and the reality is I want you to focus on the words ritual abuse. And let's break that down a little bit. First of all, abuse. How can we define abuse? Well, there's different definitions. I found a pretty good one. I mean, I'll put links here on our, on our show uh, if, if anybody wants to see them later. But abuse is cruel and violent treatment of a person or animal use of rude, insulting, or denigrating words and actions, use of something such as an object, animal, ritual, uh, in a deliberately harmful way or terrorizing way for the purpose of gaining and maintaining control over the victim for the perpetrator's gratification or protection. So you understand what is abuse really? Abuse is really not, you know, we said there's a victim of abuse, but abuse is really about the perpetrator. And what do I mean by that? The perpetrator has an issue. They have problems and they're going to use abuse, such as cruel or violent actions or treatments um, of people using objects or words or rituals in order to control other people because either they're out of control, they're feeling off, there's something wrong with them. And in order for them to feel fulfilled, in order for them to feel good, they feel like they have to control somebody else or control other people. That's a very challenging place to be in for both people because the person doing the abusing needs a lot of help. There's there's something wrong with them. We see this in society when we say that people are sociopathic, psychopathic, things of that nature, <clears throat> because they will use other people to reach their own gains. It's a very antisocial behavior. This priest did a terrible, terrible thing, and he used, unfortunately, the thing that he used during this abuse was the body and blood of Christ. He used the ultimate sacrifice that we have here. He used his power of the priesthood, which nobody else can consecrate, only a priest, and he knows that. He used that power to take control of this young lady, control her heart, control her mind, control all these different things. Now, this didn't happen overnight. This is why we call it ritual abuse. There is a grooming that takes place. It's step by step. And this is where what I would tell my daughters is, you got to put yourself in the right position because anybody can groom you that way. If somebody starts telling you that they love you, that they're in love with you, that they want what's best for you, but their actions are not the same, we got to ask ourselves why. You know, this doesn't have to be a priest or somebody who's part of a coven. This is how do you know you're dating the right person? Do they have your best interests at heart or are they controlling in nature? Are they telling you what to do, what to think, what to wear? Do they tell you that if you don't do certain things, they're not going to love you anymore? These are things that we see in relationships all the time. <clears throat> but what I would tell my daughters is the priest said it's very sacred and priests, we assume and we hope that they are holy people but they are men first before anything else. And they're going to have the same weaknesses of other men. They're going to have the exact same temptations of other men, especially more so when you take the vow of celibacy, the devil is there to make you break your vows regardless. He's there to make you feel that, you know what, it's not that big a deal or nobody will know. And so priests are at greater risk of that. I would warn my daughters, any woman really, being one-on-one -on -one with a priest is not always the healthiest thing. It's always good to go out in groups. Don't put the priest in that position either. Don't put yourself in that position. If you know them and they're a family member, gosh, if they're your brother or a cousin or something, somebody you know your whole life, of course, you're going to use your good judgment. But in this particular case, if you're studying abroad and you're not 
meeting other guys and you're not meeting other people and you're just one-on-one -on -one hanging out with this one person, I would use caution. And this is not just this young lady with a priest. I would say this with a gentleman and, and a nut or a gentleman and a married woman. If you're not out there being with somebody else, why are you hanging out with this one married woman? And that's really your only friend, your only connection and vice versa. If you're a guy and you're married, why would you not just be with your wife most of the time? If you were listening to the Terry and Jesse show before, Terry was talking about how beautifully he's always praying the rosary with his wife. And that's appropriate. And that's what keeps the relationship nurtured. But if you're married and you find that you're not praying the rosary with your spouse, but you have a friend who you always pray the rosary with, I would use caution there. I would say that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Gosh, I only go pray the rosary with this one friend. No, your marriage is a, is a sacrament. The question I would have is, if you are feeling like God is calling you to the married life, but you're only hanging out with somebody who's not available for that life, either because they've already taken their holy vows or, the, you know, of holy orders, or they've taken vows of marriage, the other great sacrament, then that's not a healthy relationship. You need to put yourself in a position where you're in a healthy relationship. Find other single Catholic people, other people who you will be able to grow with together and who you need to evaluate. Are they, Is this a nurturing relationship or not? Because the ritual that takes place, the ritual is really a rite or a ceremony in a way. And so when we say ritual abuse, and we have to understand that sometimes we, we think it's habitual, you know, routine. But no, ritual means that they, the, the ritual component of the abuse is when you're together, you do very special things over and over that are just meant for you. Uh, no, you know, we always do this together. Now, it's wonderful to have rituals in a marriage. That's very needed and necessary. That's not ritual abuse. That's beautiful rituals of part of the marriage. And everything we do in the Catholic Church is rituals. Our sacraments are rituals. We go to it, and it has to have the right purpose. But ritual abuse is when you're doing something special. You know, you're going to dinner, but you have to order certain things because otherwise the other person might get mad. And you have to dress a certain way. Otherwise, the other person is not going to like you. And you have to, you know, do all these other things and lose yourself because then otherwise the other person's either going to ignore you, not like you, make you feel bad, tell you you're no good, belittle you. That's where the abusive part comes in. Now, some people might say, well, gee, Dr. Sandoval, from what I hear of your story, it doesn't sound like he was belittling her. How do we know that he was abusing her? It goes back to this. The rituals they were doing together, they were going out. He would have the mass for her. They would have the mass together or alone. They would go to different places. It sounded like there was a lot of one-on-one -on -one time, and that was the ritual. They would have their special time. Already, that's an inappropriate ritual. That's where the abuse starts. Is the ritual appropriate or not? Because he doesn't have any, unless he decided all of a sudden, you know what, I think I'm in love with you. I think I need to make a difficult decision. I need to leave the seminary. I don't think God is calling me to the priesthood. I think God is calling me into a relationship with you. Do you agree with this? Do you feel the same way? And that would be very healthy. You know, we've, we've spent a lot of time together and I really want to marry you. That's an incredibly healthy relationship. That's actually a very hard decision to make, but a good decision to make because you're listening to the word of God and you want to do things correctly. But to say, no, I'm still going to be a priest, but we're going to have these, this time together. That's where the abuse is on both parts, if you will. Now, you're gonna, we can argue and say, well, you know, he's the priest, so he has more power over her. But is he her priest? Is, he, is she part of his parish? No, she has decisions to make too. So she knew him ever since he was a seminarian. 
at that point, why not say you're a seminarian, you need to be with your seminarian brothers, and you need to focus on your priesthood, which is a celibate state. I can't be with you all the time with a lot of this one-on-one -on -one time because these rituals are abusive. They're not healthy for us. It doesn't let you move on and focus on your priesthood and practice celibacy. It takes practice, and it doesn't let maybe the person who wants to get married or is single focus on finding the right partner and practice either the married life or the single life, whatever it is. It takes a lot of practice. This is why we're practicing Catholics. I take, I have to practice being married every day. You know, I meet my wife every day and I say, gosh, what am I going to learn about you today? I can't, I don't have you figured out, but I got to practice being married. And what are we going to do? I know a lot about you and I know a lot of things, but I'm learning new things every day. And I think that that's healthy and that's good because I can't say that it's a boring life. I got to say there's a, it's a busy life and there's different uh, obligations that we have to do. But if I spend all my time separate from the house, meeting another person one-on-one -on -one or being with another person one-on-one, -on -one, it doesn't, it doesn't add to the ritual of our marriage. In fact, that's abusive on both sides. It's an abuse to my marriage because I'm using something else to get away from my marriage. And in fact, am I putting my, my marriage down? Am I deliberately harming my marriage? Possibly, because marriage wasn't meant for that, the same way that the priesthood was not meant for a priest to spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with women in general. You know, there's different relationships we can have, but they have to be healthy. They have to allow for growth on both parts. And that's the ritual abuse part. There's rituals involved. Let's look at very specific rituals, abusive rituals, um, where the priests who, unfortunately, were they would abuse altar boys or whatnot. And what happened? Grooming evolved. And part of this grooming was making them into the fold or that they were, you know, in fact, what you also got to look at is the person who's abusing the abuser, also part of their ritual is they start to target somebody. They look at who they are going to target for their purposes, for their end. And in both these cases, it was for a sexual end. Right. For if we look at priests abusing young men, it was for sexual abuse. If we look at this priest from the story who was grooming this young lady and she was a virgin and whatnot, and he would all of a sudden start to share his sexual history with her. What, what's the purpose of that? To get to a sexual end. He did that again in another parish with another lady to get to a sexual end. Obviously, this is a problem, but they're looking for a victim. The abuser is looking for a victim and they know how so that they know how to groom them. They got to know where's the weakness for the young boys who were abused, and I use the stereotype of boys, I know there were young gals too, but classically they would find somebody who there was no father in the household, so they weren't too worried about getting beat up, and they were usually poor families, so they didn't have a lot of resources, and they were usually in the parish, and boy, if you have a poor, if you're from a, a poor parish or a poor kid and the priest pays attention to you, that's a big deal. That's a big deal, and the priest knew that. If you don't have a strong parenting at home because the father's not there, the mother's not there, they both, both parents have to work, it puts the person in a vulnerable position, and the abuser knows this. They say, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to give you the affection you don't have. For these other young ladies, how was this priest, first as a seminarian, then as a priest, picking his victims? Well, he would see what kind of conversations he would they would have. He would see, first of all, do you want to spend more time with me? And as we spend more time together, can we open up about more intimacy? Can we get more into your intimate life? There's no reason why you should be talking about your sexual intimate life to a priest necessarily, unless it's a question of confession, unless it's a question of spiritual direction. And even then, you got to ask yourself why, right? So if you're looking at it that way, but to have a casual conversation about that is really not appropriate to do with anybody who's celibate. 
Now, a lot of people could say, well, this young lady was victimized. Well, let's flip the tables a little bit. What would happen if a man wanted to have a casual conversation about sex with a nun? I think would be a lot more appalled, right? We have the, the role reversal there and we say, you can't talk to a nun about that. She shouldn't be discussing that. Spiritual direction, maybe not. Maybe that's not appropriate. Well, a priest outside of spiritual direction or the confessional, why would you be talking to him about any kind of intimacy or intimate life if it's not for specific spiritual direction? Shouldn't be a casual conversation because now you're talking to somebody who's consecrated and who can end up with a lot of temptations um, outside of their vocation. That's a challenging place to be in. Now, we can't be so naive to say, well, I thought that he was just a man of God and he would never think of me that way. And this is a person who I put all of my trust into. Well, why? Really, priests are wonderful, and I love the priesthood, and I love the rituals of the priesthood, but we've got to go to the priest and imagine the priesthood as, what is it that I'm coming for? I'm coming for the sacraments, and I'm coming to hear about Christ. That's where my focus has to be. If there's something broken in me, then of course, I want to go to confession. I want to confess that, but I shouldn't make the priest also, I shouldn't put him in a position where all of a sudden he's just my friend, and I can talk to him about anything. It would have to be really a family priest and be extremely close. We're going to talk more about this when we come back from the break. All right. Well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You are listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Today, we're talking about a heavy topic called satanic ritual abuse. And before the break, we were talking about can uh, we be, be uh, we befriend a priest? Can we be uh, friends one-on-one -on -one with a priest? Of course, it all depends on making sure that we keep moral certitude. And what do I mean by that? We got to keep our morality. We got to remember that there is a sense of uh, respect that we have to have where we don't want to make inappropriate jokes. Can I be a friend with a priest? Absolutely. In fact, I have a lot of priest friends. Granted, I went to the seminary and I know them, but if you're a man, you have to have a certain respect for females, and we teach this in the Catholic Church. Um, we have to present ourselves a certain way. We have to remember that uh, we are, there is a difference, men and women. We can influence each other. And if you're a woman, you want to have that same respect for a priest. Does that mean you can't befriend them? No. But there's always got to be a sense of modesty as well. I remember in the priesthood, we talked about custody of the eyes. Why? Because what we see is going to influence us. The eyes are the windows to the soul. So we would always say, you know, if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to be a seminarian, and I think of this as a married man, there has to be custody of the eyes. I have to be careful what I allow into my eyes because I don't want anything but my wife to be in my heart. And there's temptation out there. There's always temptation out there. We have to remember that. We have to bring back that art of modesty in our church, where if you're a female, I would say, if you're going to approach a, a priest, you're going to talk to a priest, what am I wearing? What am I What am I uh, doing? Am I being too casual? Should I remember that there is a sacrament there and that the priest is practicing custody of the eyes? Am I helping him do that? At the same time, it's helping me remember that I want to keep my modesty as well. Why? Because we don't want there to be, be abuse either way. And by abuse, I mean, it's very abusive for a woman to say, you know what, I'm going to just wear whatever I want and you better not react in any way. You better not have a natural reaction. That's not fair either. That's very controlling, right? There's got to be a, a certain sense of mutual respect and modesty. Why is this important? We need to focus now on the first part of what we were talking about with this whole phrase, satanic ritual abuse, because a lot of times we get distracted by the satanic part and we assume that there's a very specific ritual abuse. Now, ritual abuse or abuse in general 
is just abuse. What your focus is on it, well, that all depends. But it's kind of like saying the word justice versus saying the word social justice. Well, a lot of people you hear say, I believe in social justice. Well, okay, but what about justice otherwise? I mean, shouldn't we just say well, what's just in all situations? Where is the justice coming from? What does social justice mean? Oh, I get it. You're talking about justice when it comes to social work type issues. But what about justice when it doesn't come to social work type issues? What about financial justice? What about uh, family justice? What about, there's all different kinds of outliers and titles we can give to the word justice, but that takes away from the fact that we should just try to be just across the board. It's the same way when we talk about abuse or ritual abuse. People say satanic ritual abuse. Well, it brings up this image that there is a cult, that there is a black mass happening, that there are devil worshippers, and that is true. That is a very specific type of abuse. But you don't want to belittle the other abuses that people experience. Why? Because if you want to look at it that way, with priests are abusing little kids, that's satanic ritual abuse. Why? It didn't involve necessarily a cult. It didn't necessarily involve a coven or a black mass. But what are we using? We're abusing people. And from the level of the priesthood, anything you do is going to be satanic. It might not be that you are directly doing something to worship the devil. It might just be that we're falling into temptation because how many times has that happened to us? You know, any kind of, any time that there's an abuse, there's something negative there. There's a dark entity there. Does it mean that the abuser was directly trying to worship the devil in this case? Not necessarily. Does it lead us in that direction? Of course, because at the end of the day, when we die and we have to come to the gates of heaven, anything, anytime there was an abuse, it's going to go towards the gates of hell. It's not going to, you do not allow abuse in heaven. It cannot go into the gates of heaven. So if you think about it that way, any abuse is satanic because it's going to lead anybody to hell. Does that mean that everything was specifically, literally there to worship the devil? Not necessarily. You know, this particular case, where they were worried that this priest was going to be part of a coven or something. Eh, I'd be curious to read more into it, to find out more information, to get a little bit more proof, but it didn't seem that way, although he was blaspheming the Eucharist. So that's a very real door that can open to the gates of hell, even if it doesn't, if he wasn't trying to do that, he might have not even thought about that. He might have just been thinking, how can I abuse this gal or use her for my personal uh, end? And he might not have even been thinking about the devil necessarily. Well, gee, Dr. Sandoval, how can you not be thinking about it? We do it all the time. Every time we sin, I would say, I'm not thinking about the devil. I'm not thinking that I want to go to hell. I'm just having a moment of weakness. I'm having a moment where I'm human. I don't want to go to hell. Was it a satanic sin? Well, not necessarily. It was a sin and it's going to offend God. So it's going to lead me in the direction of hell. But it doesn't have to be specifically satanic. Because for that matter, we could say, well, there's animal ritual abuse or there's you know, spousal ritual abuse or there's child ritual abuse. But anytime that there's ritual abuse, it's the same thing. We've got to ask ourselves, what was the specific end that the person had in mind? Was it cruelty to animals, cruelty to a minor, or was it really that they wanted to, in fact, worship the devil? These things happen, but we always want to make sure that we have the proof there because it's very easy to label everything as satanic ritual abuse, even if it's not necessarily directly related to that. Um, important to consider. Why is this important in this case? Because this one is shocking. I mean, in many ways, it's always shocking to me when anybody uses, anybody profanes the Eucharist uh, for their own gains, to abuse another person, to uh, have power over other people, because that's so far from what the Eucharist is supposed to be. And it can lead us into the sensation of saying, well, wow, this ritual abuse, what's happening in the world? What's happening in our church? I can't believe this is so corrupt. Corruption has always been there. 
uh, corruption's always been in the church. And I dare say, unfortunately, the body of Christ has probably been desecrated from the very start. Um, we can look at, you know, the fallen priesthood as we see uh, what happened with Judas. You know, was he one of the apostles? He absolutely was. Uh, did he have the priesthood? Sure. But did he betray Christ? Absolutely, he did. So we can look at the fact that even from the start, Christ was betrayed. The body of Christ was betrayed by a priest. It's not something new. Why? Because we're human and we're going to fall to temptation. But what can we do as Catholics to help overcome this, to help feel better? It can easily feel hopeless. We can't forget the power of prayer. Now, I say that and a lot of times my friends will roll their eyes, oh, the power of prayer. We diminish prayer a lot of times without realizing that it is the most powerful thing we can do. Because as we pray, we connect ourselves to God. And there's many different kinds of prayer. One of the sad things is that we just say the power of prayer and we just think of prayer as this one giant melting pot of, oh, I'm going to talk to God or I'm going to say a Hail Mary. But prayer, remember, is really conversation with God, connecting ourselves with God, whether it be a formal prayer like the Hail Mary, the Our Father, saying the Rosary. These are formal prayers that we sit down and connect ourselves with, with God that way. There's another, another very, very specific formal prayer. And this is what I would challenge all of our listeners uh, to do. I would challenge all of our listeners to, when we go to receive the Eucharist, don't forget that you can receive the Eucharist for a special intention. We can go receive the Eucharist and say, I'm going to offer my reception of the Eucharist for, I can offer it for every time that the Eucharist is blasphemed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to try to pray. I'm going to try to present myself to receive the Eucharist in the most pure way possible to make up for the times that it is that is not received purely or that is blasphemed or that it is received in sacrilege. I'm going to try to do that as I receive the Eucharist that way. I'm going to try to help make up for that in reparation. So we got to remember that there is reparation when we receive the Eucharist because what's happening at that moment? We're back at Calvary. We're, we're back at the, at the Passover. We're back there with Christ at the Last Supper receiving the Eucharist from his sacrifice. His sacrifice helped clear everything up. It gets rid of any imperfection. There's no question about that. So what happens when I receive the Eucharist? I unite myself to the body of Christ, not just, well, to Christ himself and the body of Christ, which is to each other. And if I receive in a state of grace, hoping to make up for the times people receive when they're not in the state of grace, or more specifically, when people abuse the Eucharist, because this is really what this was. This was an abuse of the Eucharist. And I don't know that the priest was necessarily trying to desecrate the Eucharist directly, or was he using it as part of this ploy to really bring this gal in? But then there's people who do want to desecrate the Eucharist directly. I want to do it differently. I want to do it right. And if I can come there in my imperfection, obviously, but in a state of grace and receive the Eucharist that way, that's very powerful. I got to remember that there is going to be redemption and that there is going to be reparation of sins. So what else can I do to receive the Eucharist or what else can I repair? I can go receive the Eucharist and say, I'm going to receive this Eucharist um, for that person who said something bad about me, for that person who said, gosh, Dr. Sandoval, he's, I don't like Dr. Sandoval. He's not all that. He, he annoys me. Something like that. That's Okay. We might annoy each other as people because we're human beings, but you know what? I'm going to receive the Eucharist for that person. Not so that they think I'm less annoying, but for their hearts to be full of Christ. And that way they can see the beauty everywhere. And maybe they can put up with my annoyance a little bit more. That's why I'm going to receive the Eucharist. Or I know my wife's going through a tough time. I'm going to receive this Eucharist so that that burden is lifted off of her a little bit. I'm going to receive this Eucharist so that my kids are a little bit happier. I'm going to receive this Eucharist so that my friends who are going, who are really, you know, going through something very difficult that I, I cannot help in any way, that there is reparation. 
The Eucharist is very, very powerful, and we forget that. In fact, it's infinite power. Why not say, I'm going to receive this Eucharist for what's happening in a foreign country right now. There is a war in the Ukraine. I'm going to receive this Eucharist for all those people in the Ukraine who cannot get to Mass and receive the Eucharist. This is how we repair ritual abuse, by ritual grace. This is what we need to remember. So we're very, very much get the catchphrase of ritual abuse, ritual abuse, oh, satanic ritual abuse, and we're appalled. And sadly, we get wrapped into, I want to read more about that. I want to find out more about that. I get more intrigued by that. But there is ritual grace in our Catholic faith. Every time I pray the rosary, I ask Our Lady for the graces that she's been entrusted, that they come down on earth and that they come and fill my household and my family with these graces. There is ritual grace. Ritual needs to be something positive for us. I want to get the rituals of the church where I'm going to go to confession. It's a ritual. I'm going to go to confession to remove myself of darkness or the imperfections that lead me away from God. And I want to receive the ritual graces from confession. Even if I don't remember my sins, or even if it's something that I might have confessed, or even if I feel like Gosh, I don't think that I have that many sins right now. But you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to the priest. I'm going to let him know, I just can't think of my sins right now. I'm sure I've done something imperfect. So can you please give me absolution anyway? I come here with a contrite heart, and I want to receive the graces of confession. And what I'm confessing is that I'm not perfect. I think that's one of the most powerful confessions we can make. Because it's easy to go through our list of sins. And those are just the ones we know. But we forget that there's a lot of sins that I'm not aware of. I better show up to the confessional and just say, I'm not aware of what my sins are right now, but I'm confessing that I'm not perfect, that I'm not better than my fellow man. And anybody who I think, gosh, what's what's up with this guy? Or why are they, everybody loves them and they don't love me. Anytime I think something like that, I forget about it later, but I might still be carrying that burden. I better go to confession and get some ritual graces from that to help repair all the ritual abuse that there is in the world. More when we come back from the break. All right, well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You are listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. As always, a pleasure to have our listeners here with us. Today, we are talking about abuse versus grace. We started talking the show about satanic ritual abuse. What, that, what does that mean? What does that phrase even really mean? What does ritual abuse mean? Why do we say satanic ritual abuse versus other ritual abuses? But in the midst of all that, it's easy to get wrapped up and read about that and really get into this whole world of darkness and think that we need to be experts in that. And sadly, we leave by the wayside the fact that we have a lot of ritual grace, and that's what we need to be focused on. Why would I say that? Well, gee, Dr. Sandoval, but I got to fight the forces of, of, of darkness. Not really. Our job is to get to heaven. Fighting the forces of darkness is a side effect of that. It's just part of the job. It's going to happen. So we got to know how to do that. But a lot of times we waste we waste time trying to read all that without realizing, wait a minute, if I'm going to try to make it to heaven for eternity, sometimes we think, oh, I made it to heaven. That's it. I reached my goal. Well, in heaven, we're probably going to be put to work is my guess. I don't think that we're just going to sit there and not try to understand more of God and learn more of God. Heaven's going to be exciting. I'm going to start learning more about God. God is infinite and God is infinite knowledge. God is infinite heaven. And we want to have infinite graces. Well, I better start practicing on that because if that's where I'm going to live the rest of my life, I better learn more about heaven. I better learn more about what these graces are. It's kind of like saying, gosh, I'm going to move to a whole different country. I'm not going to spend my time learning about my particular city right now if I'm going to move to a different country. If I move to a different country, I want to know where I'm going to go. I better read up on that country. What's the history? What are the different cities there? What can I expect? Where am I going to get my job? What's going on at that place? A lot of times we forget to study heaven. 
and we need to study ritual grace is what I would say. I found this little article. It just says grace, what it is and what it does. I thought it was a pretty good little article. It's from catholic.com. And this is what it says. Let's read about grace because I want to push all that satanic ritual abuse aside. Yes, it's there. It's shocking. Ritual abuse, anytime our, our, our Eucharist is profane or blasphemed, anytime a priest especially falls, it's very hurtful to us. What we need to do is, instead of criticizing the priest, because we've got to remember he was just a man. I can't deify him. I can't say that he is God. I got to say he's supposed to represent God. But if he falls, I got to start praying for him because that reminds me that am I praying enough for our priests? Am I praying enough for our people in holy orders? Am I praying enough for married couples? You know, am I, am I doing this? And am I studying heaven along the way? Well, let's look at what this article says. It says, if you took your parish's catechism classes when you were growing up, you would at least remember that there are two kinds of grace. That's two kinds of grace, sanctifying grace and actual grace. That may be all you recall. The names being so similar, you might have the impression sanctifying grace is nearly identical to actual grace, but not so. Let's talk about grace. Sanctifying grace stays in the soul. It's what makes the soul holy. It gives the soul supernatural life. More properly, it is supernatural life. Versus actual grace, by contrast, is a supernatural push or encouragement. It's transient. It doesn't live in the soul, but it acts on the soul from the outside, so to speak. It's a supernatural kick in the pants. It gets the will and intellect moving so that we can seek out and keep sanctifying grace. So in its natural state, your soul isn't fit for heaven. What you need to live there is supernatural life, not just natural life. The supernatural life is called sanctifying grace. So remember, sanctifying grace stays in the soul, okay? If sanctifying grace dwells in your soul when you die, then you can live in heaven though you may need to be purified first in purgatory. If it does not dwell in your soul when you die, in other words, if your soul is spiritually dead by being in the state of mortal sin, you cannot live in heaven. You then have to face an eternity of spiritual death, an utter separation of your spirit from God. What it's not telling you is hell is a place of despair. Separation from God is pure despair. So then the article goes on to talk about what spiritual suicide you can obtain supernatural life by yielding to actual grace you receive. God keeps giving you these divine pushes, and all you have to do is go along. For instance, he moves you to repentance. And if you take the hint and you can find yourself in the confessional where the guilt for your sins is remitted, through the sacrament of penance, through the reconciliation to God, you receive sanctifying grace. But you can also lose it again by sinning mortally. So let's go back and look at this. This is important because this is where I'm talking about our rituals. God moves us along the same way that somebody who's going to abuse is going to prepare somebody is going to start grooming them. God's grooming us too in a very positive way. God is grooming us for heaven. This is where we get those little inclinations. Do we listen to those inclinations from God? Boy, I feel really bad about what I did. I feel really, I'm repenting for my, I feel a lot of repentance for my sin right now. That's God grooming us. Sometimes, you know, in the, in the world of psychology, guilt is not a good thing. We don't talk about guilt. Guilt, oh no, put that aside. No, guilt is good. Guilt is actual grace telling me, I think I did something wrong, right? We need to analyze that a little bit. Now, if I feel guilty because unfortunately I was abused, that's sadly an inappropriate guilt or a guilt that doesn't need to be there, but you still feel it. So we need to look at it. We can't ignore it. If I feel guilty about something, I got to ask myself why. What is it that I'm feeling guilty about? That's that nudge, that push from, from God saying, hey, there's a little actual grace I'm giving you. I'm giving you a nudge. You should repent a little bit. That wasn't good. Well, I better get to the confessional then. And I'm going to go to the confessional and I'm going to have this ritual with God because he's grooming me to go to the confessional. And I'm going to be full of sanctifying grace because I'm going to get rid of anything that's bad.
So let's see what else the article says. Keep that word in mind, mortal. It means death. Mortal sins are deadly sins because they kill off the supernatural life, the sanctifying grace. Mortal sins cannot coexist with the supernatural life because by their nature, such sins are saying no to God, while sanctifying grace would be saying yes. And that's the real difference. What is sanctifying grace? When I say yes to God in my soul, when I say, I don't want anything else but you, God, I want to get rid of anything dark, anything negative. And even if I think that it's fascinating, gosh, I don't know, there's a there's a, a movie there and I heard it was a dirty movie or, oh, I heard that there was a dirty magazine. I'm really curious about that. No, you know what? I'm going to say no to that and I'm going to say yes to God. I don't care how much curiosity I have, how tantalized I am by it. I'm going to push it aside. I'm going to say yes to God. That's sanctifying grace. But you know what? That was actual grace. That was God telling me, no, get rid of that. Trust me. Trust me over here. Don't trust those instincts because you know that those are going to lead you away. Because if you start doing that, guess what's going to happen? You start looking at something negative, you're going to start the ritual of abuse to yourself. We can actually start that ritual. We start getting nudged the other way. Right. There used to be in the old days, I used to watch cartoons and there was a, a devil on the right shoulder and a demon on the left shoulder. That's still kind of what's happening. How am I being nudged? Which way am I going? Am I going to go just by my instinct and what I think is going to make me happy? Or am I going to say, no, you know what? I'm going to say yes to God, which means I have to let other things die. I don't want to die. I want to be dead to the bad. In fact, they don't even know I'm around. I want all those other things to die and I'm going to move towards the good. Let's see what else it says. Venial sins don't destroy supernatural life and they don't even lessen it. Mortal sins destroy it outright. The trouble with venial sins is that they weaken us, make us more vulnerable to mortal sins. When you lose supernatural life, there's nothing you can do on your own to regain it. You're reduced to merely natural life again. So no natural act can merit a supernatural reward. You can merit a supernatural reward only by being able to act above your nature, which you can do only if you have help, grace. Remember, if we lose supernatural life, I can naturally go to confession, but I'm not connected to God until I do, until I repent of my sins. To regain supernatural life, you have to receive actual graces from God. How do we receive graces from God? We go to confession. Remember I said you can go to the confessional, even if you feel like you have no sins, but you want to receive graces. I want to get rid of anything, even the slightest speck of imperfection. I just want to receive these graces. Think of these as helping graces. Such graces differ from sanctifying grace in that they aren't a quality of the soul and don't abide in it. Rather, actual graces, what they're talking about is actual grace, enable the soul to perform some supernatural act, such as an act of faith or repentance. If the soul responds to actual grace and makes the appropriate supernatural act, it again receives a supernatural life. At the end of the day, it comes down to going to the sacrament of confession so I can go to the sacrament of the Eucharist. And in that way, I have these rituals of grace. I go to confession. It is a ritual. I have to prepare. I have to be groomed for it. I have to be in a state of repentance for it. I have to allow myself to accept what God's telling me and really listen to God and say, God is pushing me in this direction. I better listen to that. I better succumb to the graces that God is giving me. And in fact, I allow myself to be dominated by God and not dominated by the evil one. How am I going to do that? I'm going to go to confession. I'm going to feel pretty darn good afterwards. And then I'm going to go to communion and unite myself with Christ once and for all. Hopefully. But we're human. We keep falling. And every time it's a once and for all. we got to keep repeating that until we practice it and we get to heaven. It says, really cleanse. Sanctifying grace implies a real transformation of the soul. This is true. Recall that most of the Protestant reformers deny that a real transformation takes place. They said God doesn't actually wipe away our sins. Instead, our souls remain corrupted, full of sin. God merely throws a cloak over them and treats them as if they were spotless, knowing all the while that they're not. 
that's not the Catholic view. We believe our souls really are cleansed by an infusion of supernatural life. Of course, <clears throat> we're still subject to temptation to sin. We still suffer the effects of Adam's fall in that sense. It's called concupiscence. That's our, our drive to sin. But we're going to fight that. God has removed the sin that we have, much like a mother might wash the dirt off a child who has a tendency to get dirty again. Our wills are given the new powers of hope and charity, things absent at the merely natural level. So remember, hope, charity, faith, hope, and charity <clears throat> are supernatural graces that we have to pray for. We can't just get those. We have to ask for them. When we go to confession, we're ready for that. When we go to confession, the reality is, brothers and sisters, is that God wipes away our sins such that they never even existed. Now, we're going to say, well, there's always going to be temporal punishment for sin. Sure, because we're still here in, in space and time. We're here on this earth. But when we present ourselves before God, if the sin is wiped away, it's no longer there. In fact, there was a story one time of somebody who was asking, you know, they, they went to a priest and they said, I'm having this, this vision, this apparition. I'm not sure if it's if it's Christ or if it's the devil, because it looks like Christ. But what if it's the devil? I don't want to be tempted. I don't know. I don't want to fall for a trap. And I'm seeing this vision. I really think that, you know, it's Christ, but I don't know. And the priest said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to them and ask them what my last mortal sin was. And so then this, this person went to Christ, or the, the apparition that appeared to be Christ, and he said, well, the priest wants you to tell me his last mortal sin. And you know what the, re the reply was? Jesus said, tell him I don't remember. Tell him I don't know. And that's where he said, that must be Jesus Christ. Because it was the devil, he'd be quick to condemn me. Even if he lied to you, even if he didn't know what it was, but he'd quick, be quick to condemn me. He would, he would tell you something. And he would tell you either what it was or if, if God allowed that, or he would make something up. He would tell you a lie. He'd want to put me in a bad light. But the truth is, once our sins are forgiven, once we've confessed them and they are forgiven, God doesn't hold them against us. This is what we need to remember when we prepare ourselves to go to church. You know, we can read about satanic ritual abuse and all these things and worry about the sins of other people, or we can pray for them and pray that we don't fall into those traps, that we're not, you know, falling into that naively, that we really keep an eye on where we are as Catholics, that we have the reverence for the holy order, so much reverence that we remember modesty, that we remember that we have to be respectful when it comes to being in the presence of somebody who has holy orders. And for that same token, we want to be respectful when we're in the presence of somebody who's received the sacrament of marriage, who has a family. We also want to be respectful of somebody who hasn't, somebody who's single, because we need to know where we are in our state in life and what we can do with our state in life. These are important things to consider. Why? Because we always want to be in the state of grace. If there is such a violation of the Eucharist, such a violation that there was some kind of a ritual abuse, we have to remember that even that can be wiped away. That can be forgiven. That can be made full of grace again by that person repenting. And this is really what we've got to do. At the end of the day, we have to pray for our brothers and sisters. Anybody who's the abuser, who's performing ritualistic abuse, we need to pray for them so that they find that repentance in their heart and come back to God. This is Dr. Sandoval saying thank you for joining us here at the clinic this week. And until next time, let's keep it Catholic.